Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Doc Stahl with New Books and Jazz. Today I'll be speaking with freelance photographer and author Kathy Sloan about her new book, Keystone Corner, Portrait of a Jazz Club, published by Indiana University Press 2012. Kathy's book captures a time and place in San Francisco in the 70s and early 80s that we may never see again. Her fabulous black-and-white photographs of jazz players such as Art Blakey, Dexter Gordon, Rashawn Roland Kirk, Betty Carter, Elvin Jones, Mary Lou Williams, Bobby Hutcherson, McCoy Tyner, and countless others range from the contemplative to the kinetic, and they all tell a story. Kathy writes, I wanted to capture both the rush of the moment and the power of creating music on stage, those great artists who were telling us all about freedom. Like the Keystone Corner itself, Kathy's book is a labor of love, with fascinating oral histories, photography, and design. And it includes a CD with some of the great live performances at the Keystone Corner. Hi, this is Doc Stoll with New Books in Jazz. We're talking to photographer and author Kathy Sloan about her new book, The Keystone Corner, Portrait of a Jazz Club, published by Indiana University Press 2012. I've read it. I think it's a fabulous book. I love your contemplative and kinetic photos and the interviews you did with the people associated with the Keystone Corner at a magnificent time in San Francisco. And as I, we talked before, Kathy, uh, it, uh, it captured a time and place that can't be recaptured in the uh, 70s and early 80s. So I think people will love reading your book if they love jazz and love jazz musicians. And there's also a wonderful CD as well. So thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All and right. thank you for the wonderful things you've said about my book. Oh, it's, it's, it's all true. And, uh, of course, uh, I was there. And uh, I looked for the back of my head there and some of the pictures. I wasn't sure uh, if, if you caught me or not, but uh, you sure caught me in spirit there. Well, uh, first of all, you've got a fascinating background, Kathy. I think your, uh, your, your listeners would enjoy hearing about where you grew up and what your interests were and where you went to school. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, your concept uh, for the book. Okay. Um, I was born in New York, but my family moved to Waterbury, Connecticut when I was eight months old. Um, it was 1940, the beginning or the lead up to the war, and my father couldn't find work in New York. And so we moved up to Connecticut. Um, I grew up there. And then I went to college at Wellesley for two years and that wasn't quite the right place for me. So I moved to New York and finished up at Barnard and then went to graduate school at uh, the city of New York. And I studied, um, I was the Russian studies major as an undergraduate. And then I went to graduate school in uh, English literature. I was not at all involved in photography then. When I got out of graduate school, I taught high school dropouts for five years 
New York. My first job was uh, working, teaching school where they were getting job training. It was part of the Real Great Society program that Lyndon B. Johnson had started. Kathy, you're breaking up a little bit, and uh, could you just repeat what you um, what you said there about uh, teaching uh, uh, dropouts I was, and, and the Great Society? Uh, I was teaching dropouts on the Lower East Side in a program called um, Mobilization for Youth, which was part of Lyndon Johnson's Real Great Society program, where he was trying to set up job training programs. And I taught reading and thinking skills. And then I went on to other places. I taught at Queens College. I taught at Manhattan Community College. And my daughter was born in 1970. And shortly after she and I and her father moved to Seattle. And then we separated and I came down to Berkeley to visit some friends and never left. So All right, so, so from New York to Berkeley, uh, a pilgrimage that uh, that many free spirits like yourself make, I think, and and made during those times. You said you didn't have training; you had training in literature, but you didn't have any formal training in photography. How did your interest in literature manifest itself in your love of? jazz, and uh, ultimately photography. How did that all come together? That's actually a very interesting question, and no one's ever asked me that before. Um, My interest in photography started with my taking photographs of my daughter, of course, of which there are zillions, and of taking photographs also of the community that we were building in the Bay Area. And I wanted particularly to look at um, the multicultural nature of the Bay Area. My daughter is African American and Jewish, and there were no books available, or practically none, um, for me to show her black people in children's literature. And so I was very much committed to doing that. Um, the jazz came um, the jazz came because I was very involved in the civil rights movement as a teacher, and when I first went to Keystone Corner, I was struck immediately by that sense of freedom of wanting freedom of talking about freedom that was part of what was the civil rights movement. And this seemed to me to give me a visual way of talking about that. And I was very taken by the music, um, by the musicians who were making the music, and I wanted to know more about how that worked. I had no formal background in photography, nor did I have any real background in music. I still don't know in an academic or intellectual way anything about music. But you dug the music, and you dug the energy, and you dug the vibe at the Keystone Corner. Now, how did that 
lead you into photography? You mentioned that you were taking pictures of your daughter and, and, and things of that nature. You were involved in the civil rights movement. How did you develop uh, kind of a, your own formal training in photography? I know the answer, of course, in your book. It was the Keystone Corner was your classroom, right? Exactly. So tell and, us about that. Okay, I will. Um, Keystone Corner was a very small, dark, funky place. And um, I was shooting film that was rated at 400 ISO or 400 ASA at the time. And I couldn't get enough light. So I did what's called pushing film, which is I set my meter as if I had more light. And then I overdeveloped the film so that I would get some kind of image. And in doing this, I had to, you know, I had to see what happened with the film. What kind of light could I focus on? Um, what kind of backgrounds were there? So I learned how to look at the whole frame. You know, instead of just concentrating, let's say, on the face of a musician, I would take into account the background, which was this very loud, in visual terms, mural that I was always trying to avoid in the beginning, and then I realized there was no way to avoid it, so I incorporated the mural into the music. Um, there was a mirror on one side, and I tried for years to get the musicians lined up in just the right way so I could get their reflections in the mirror. But because there was a very shallow depth of field, meaning that I didn't have a lot of leeway for focusing because it was so dark. You know, that would only happen when the musicians happened to be in the right place and I could get to the right spot. I couldn't move around very much in there because the tables and chairs were so close to each other. So I, you know, I learned a lot about composition. Um, I learned a lot about lighting. Uh, and I don't think I could have learned about it in the same way. It might have been easier in a classroom, but it certainly wouldn't have been as interesting. Well, it, it occurred to me that the whole structure of your book is jazz. The whole structure of your photography experience, you were, you were riffing, you were soloing, you were experimenting because you weren't formally trained, very much like many of the musicians that you were photographing. Exactly. Thank you. I'm glad you picked up on that. I would go to Keystone. Um, usually a band was there for a week, and they would come in on Tuesday, and they would play through Sunday. And, and so I would go on Tuesday night and introduce myself to the band members, ask their permission to take the photographs, and then listen. Um, because I learned quite early that I couldn't hear and see at the same time, not with any degree of focus. So I would listen to the band. Then I'd come back on Thursday night, and I would photograph. And so I was really responding to the music without consciously hearing it. And I think that is reflected in the photographs. And then on Sunday, I would bring everybody back so that, you know, there had been a real exchange. 
it's almost like you parallel the experience of these musicians when it just to drop names of the people that you photographed in the book, Rasan Roland Kirk and uh, Cecil Taylor, Miles Davis, uh, no, uh, Dexter Gordon. I didn't get Miles. <laughs> you told you had an anecdote about uh, about or one of the the people in your book had an anecdote about uh, about Miles Davis. That's right. Or, or but it, it it occurred to me that. Um, you know, they would come in at the beginning of the week and have their kind of practice sessions. So by the time Friday and Saturday rolled around, they were they were hot. They were in the groove, and that's kind of what you were doing when you were photographing them too. Uh, yeah, except I I tried not to go there too often on weekends because it was very busy on weekends, and Todd Barkin had given me carte blanche to come in and photograph without paying a door charge, which was truly a gift. And um, I didn't want to take up a seat that he could sell. So my favorite night for going was Thursday night. And for real music aficionados, Thursday night was really the night. Um, Sometimes Sunday, too. But Friday and Saturday... You know, it was too crowded to be able to be in there photographing. Tell us a little bit about the structure of, of the book, how you structured your, your photographs and also the, the recorded interviews you did with, with the musicians and the people who, who worked there. Okay, hold a second. Mm. When I first conceived of the book, I thought of it as a photography book. And as I went through all my negatives over and over and over and culled what I thought were the best images and scanned them all, I realized that the story that I thought needed to be told had to go beyond photographs. So I started interviewing people um, who had been there, worked there, and I started with Eddie Marshall because he was an old friend who I had met at Keystone. And I did Laurie Antonioli, who happened to be at his house the day I was there. And then I called Todd Barkin in New York and asked if I could come and photograph him. And George Cables was in New York, and Bob Stewart was in New York, so I made a a trip to New York. I interviewed each person separately. It would have been nice to do them in small groups because, you know, when you're sharing memories, if you're in a group, then people encourage each other and um, remind each other of things. But I did them, whoops, I just thought, okay. Uh, But I did them separately. And so then I had all of these interviews and no budget, no money, no publisher. And so it was left to me to transcribe them all, which was not something I was looking forward to. It's a very slow and tedious process. So I took a break and I made a film. (laughs) I made my first film, which is an aside, but it's called Witness to Hiroshima. And it's about a Hiroshima survivor who had been a 17-year-old soldier in Hiroshima when the bomb fell. But, you know, then I finished it and I had to get back to transcribing. And it turned out to be the best thing I did because I didn't know how I was going to structure this book. 
And as I was listening back and transcribing these interviews, similar themes and topics kept coming up to the surface. And I thought, okay, so if I made chapters on themes instead of just reproducing most of the interviews, it would sound like people were having a conversation, which is probably where you got the idea that we were all sitting in the same room. Well, I, I did. Now, uh, is this? Did you? Did I miss that in your book? Because it really did appear like you had these people sitting around talking together. So, no, you, it you was pulled just, off a good one. That was fabulous. Yeah, that was just really a stroke of luck, and some say genius, but that's what happened. So, if I were doing Eddie Marshall's interview and he talked about uh, all the things he learned at Keystone and then I got to someone else and they were talking about how it was like a school and then I, you know, I would just cut out those sections and put them all together in a chapter. So I have a chapter called Teach Me Tonight, which is different people talking about their education at Keystone. And then when I got through doing all that cutting and pasting, then I went through and, you know, edited yet again to smooth it out. But I didn't change the language. I just changed the placements of the language. And I think it worked well for this book. I'm quite pleased with that. I think it did. Uh, just read some of the uh, some of the chapter it? titles to your listeners. Begin the Begin. Aura's Kitchen, Teach Me Tonight, Bobby and Bags, compared to what bright moments. Uh, a lot of jazz people will uh, recognize those, uh, those themes. Um, in, in your note to me, you mentioned how much you liked Aura Harris's piece. There were four people whose extended interviews cried to be in the book on their own. Aura Harris was one She's a wonderful storyteller. She was the chef and cook at Keystone for many years. Um, and so there's her extended story. There's, of course, Todd Barkins. Um, and then there's Oren Keatnews, who is a well-known record producer. And then Jack Hirschman, who was Poet Laureate of San Francisco, and brought in a whole other side of looking at the music's effect on him on po and poetry and the intersection of poetry and jazz. So I thought that would be a nice solo chapter. Yeah, just uh, it, I think anybody who loves jazz reading it uh, will, uh, will pick up on that. It's, uh, it's really great. Some of the great characters uh, that you met, I don't want you to have to single out anybody. Obviously, you seem to have an affection for Art Blakey. There's that beautiful photograph of Art Blakey with your daughter. Uh, it was just lovely. Your daughter looks so angelic there. <laughs> and uh, also, Rasan Roland Kirk, uh, I think I mentioned to you, if, if you were a fiction writer and came up with this character, your editor would go, there's, you know, this is unbelievable. This is too over the top. And uh, what an amazing character he was. Yeah. Who was the most, um, I don't know how to phrase this, Kathy, but 
was there anybody that was that you wanted to capture that was difficult to capture that you were taking photographs and you said it's just not what I want and you stuck with it until you got it um the most difficult was McCoy Tyner and it wasn't because of who he is but something about the shape of his I don't know what it is I never really figured it out but the shape of his face made it very difficult to get a really good photograph of him um I don't know that I ever I don't think I ever really solved the problem but there is one photograph of him in the book um I photographed him at the Berkeley Jazz Festival I photographed him at Yoshi's and I never got the photograph that I think really captured him um I don't know what it was. His face turned to mush under my camera. Isn't that interesting? You know, um, you had uh, at least two Art Blakey photos in there, and in one of them he looked absolutely regal. I mean, you just could see the intensity and the intelligence there. I mean, you got it. It was uh, it was great. Was anyone else who just you they just jumped out at the at the camera? Well, with art, I did love art. Um, do you want me to tell a brief piece of the story of how oh, we yes. connected, or do you want to leave that for your readers? Well, I, I, I think uh, if they're listening thus far, I think they should, they should hear it. Um, I, of course, met Art on one of those nights when I went to Keystone, and I went and I introduced myself as I had to so many people, and he was the first person who said, turned to me and said, and tell me about you. What do you do? And I was so taken by that um, that, you know, we sat and talked for a while. We discovered we both loved literature. And I said, well, why don't you come for dinner? <laughs> so I invited him for dinner and he said yes. And I was then practically living on welfare and I had a little house in Oakland that had very little furniture, but he came with, I believe one of his band members drove him, and then the others came later. And we sat in my kitchen and talked. That's where the photograph of he and my daughter Aisha is from. Aisha brought out her little violin that she was studying and sat on his lap, and he listened, and we talked. And afterwards, he told me that I was the first American who had ever invited him for dinner. Well, of course, no I didn't believe it. And I said, no, you know, you're surely exaggerating. And he insisted that all over the world people would invite him for dinner, but not in this country. So I accepted it, although I still think it was an exaggeration. But um, every time he was in town, I would go see him and we would sit and talk and talk about what we were reading and I have a lot of photographs of him most of which are with his mouth opening and him grinning which is kind of an iconic Art Blakey photograph but when I was going through my negatives for yet the fourth time this one that's in the book of him serious jumped out at me um, and I thought it looked almost like an African mask, and yeah. 
I really wanted to show that serious part of him, not the persona that he normally projected, but this moment of intense concentration and thought. Interesting how in talking to you and you you tell us the backstories, I guess one of the, the beauties of your book is that obviously we don't know those backstories and we kind of impute and 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 come up with our our own interpretations, which is the most I'm beautiful sorry part you of faded out, Doc. Okay, I just I was no just voice. saying that it's uh, oh. it's it's lovely to have your own interpretations, not knowing the backstories, and that's the beauty of art is that we interpret them in different ways. And I was just thinking about somebody who may not know a lot about jazz. One of the beautiful things about your book is is that they can put themselves in a time and place that they never were. And with the CD that you have and the interviews that you have and the photographs, it's it's almost like they can be there. I think you've, you've really given people a gift there because it was such a special time. I wondered if you might talk about that because so much of that were those, I guess, um, a little more than 10, 11 years that the Keystone Corner was open in the 70s and early 80s in San Francisco. Uh, and everybody seemed to talk about that there was a special vibe there, that there was a special feeling there, that the Keystone Corner was somehow different. And the musicians said that, and the people who worked there said that, and you said that. But what was it about that? Um, Why was it different? I will answer that in a second, but may I go back to something you said in the very beginning, or asked in the very beginning? Absolutely. Which was, what was the connection between my literature background and my photography? Yes. Um, you just mentioned the backstories um, and my wanting to tell those in this book. And that really does come from my literature background. My photographs, not only of Keystone, but the rest of my work, is very narrative. I once went to a gallery to show them some photographs to see if I could have an exhibit. And the curator said, you know, I really like your photographs, but they're too narrative. They're not arty enough, and I won't be able to sell them. I said, okay. But in fact, my photographs are very narrative because of my literature background and my love of story and storytelling. So I wanted this book to be like that. I didn't want it um, to just be beautiful photographs of musicians. And I didn't want it to be the usual jazz story about drugs. In fact, I prided myself I'm not having but one mention of drugs in this entire book. So that's to answer your previous question. Now, why Keystone was very special, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. And I think at the top of the list is the fact that Todd Barkin was not interested in making a lot of money. Uh, I know that seems like a peculiar way to start this discussion, but because of his, what some people call lack of business sense, among other ways of putting it, it was a very relaxed place. Um, musicians came in 
not musicians who were playing there, but local musicians could come in there for free. I came in for free. People would stand outside and listen to the music. And and Todd made the room very relaxed for musicians. They didn't have to start exactly on time. They didn't have to end exactly on time. He never told them how many minutes were in the set and then they had to stop. All of the things that are usual in clubs was not happening there. So that musicians were free to try new material, to stretch out, to enjoy the audience. The audience was so close to the stage that there was no way you could be in there and not be in the music. The back room, which was legendary, was open to anybody who was in the club. You know, if you go to, if I go to Yoshi's tonight, which I may do to see Kenny Barron, I will not be able to easily go backstage and say hello to Kenny because there will be a man standing at the door with his arms folded wanting to know who I am and what right I have to think I can go backstage. In Keystone, there was a, uh, a curtain that separated the front room from the back room. And all kinds of people would go backstage, and the musicians would be sitting there. There was a wonderful old couch. The walls were plastered with photographs of musicians, and the ceiling was too. And people would just sit and talk to each other. Um, the musicians would be able to tell each other stories. I wish I had had a tape recorder backstage then. Um, because there were all those wonderful ways in which musicians uh, educate each other about the ways of the road, the ways of the life of being a jazz musician. It, it's, not, it's not an easy life, and it's not something that they were taught in schools. They were taught in the back rooms of clubs, on the long bus rides they took to get from one club to another, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So that made Keystone very special. Those things made Keystone very special. And it was yeah. a low ebb. One of the many over the lots of years jazz has been around. Um, it was disco and rock and roll, and there weren't very many clubs left anymore for jazz. So Keystone played a really important role in that, and New York. People love to come out to Keystone because they were treated so well. Um, Todd loved the musicians. He really loved them. And, you know, they felt that love. And everybody who worked at the club was there, not because they were making huge salaries, because I think Helen Ray, it was, who said they made $15 a shift. Um so everybody was there for the music and for the musicians. And then another thing was that Todd booked a very wide range of music. You know, it was his, his great love was bebop. And to a large extent, it was a bebop room. But that wasn't all. I mean, there was Cecil Taylor there. There was um, Ed Kelly who was um, lived in Oakland and taught music and was a wonderful piano player. His wife had a gospel choir, and they sang at Keystone. 
So there was this wide range of music you could hear, but because it was always good, people would come to hear music there that they didn't know anything about. I think it's Devorah Major, uh, who was who's also in the book and who was another poet laureate of San Francisco, said, you could always come away from there feeling like you had a great meal. Um, and she said, you know, and she was very young then. She was in college when Keystone was a, in the beginning of Keystone. She said, you know, she and her friends would go there just to see who they wouldn't have heard on the radio. So those yeah, you mentioned you mentioned a, a, a great meal, literally and figuratively. I mean, you had a great meal in the sense of the the, the comradeship that you had and the mm-hmm. music. But also the kitchen played a big. You talked about the aura, the cook, and the smells wafting out all the time. And so you felt like you were in grandma's home and how much the jazz musicians and how Les McCann, how she didn't let anybody in her kitchen and how he and he, he, he basically insisted himself into the kitchen to, to bake a cake. Exactly. And these are just priceless stories. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people commented on how... Keystone felt like Todd Barkin's living room, and he was just charging people to come into his living room so he could hear some good music. And it really did feel that way. You always saw people you knew over and over and over again. And, you know, there wasn't any large space where you could hang out. There was this little club, and people saw each other regularly. Some had their own regular seat. Eddie Henderson... Um, didn't play there often, but he was there every night I was there, and he had his regular seat near the door. Um, and he talks at length in the book about the kind of education that he got there. Yeah, it uh, even the um, the fact that the name Keystone, you should tell your uh, your listeners how it got the name and how the, the cooking almost... Uh, uh, was a buy-off in a in a cute sense. That story about the cook uh, or a parking your car. And, I'm sorry, uh, how, you how, keep slipping away. Okay, you start, uh, start again with that. Oh well, I was going to say that uh, you should tell your listeners about uh, how the Keystone Corner got its name, and uh, how the cook would uh, run in there with the uh, carrot cake so that she could park. Um, Keystone Corner before Todd Barkin took it over, was um, a rock club. And it was called Keystone Corner because it was right across a very small alleyway from the North Beach Police Station, Um, which, of course, was uh, quite interesting to have the police station right there. Um, And... I don't know. As far as I know, nobody was being paid off. Uh, Recently, I did a book reading at a bookstore called Books, Inc. in San Francisco. And when I got through, a young woman raised her hand and said, I am the daughter of the man who was the captain of that police station. And he used to bring me to work with him and then take me over to Keystone. Uh, When I was setting up interviews, I had this idea that it would be wonderful to have an interview with one of the cops who had worked there. 
and I contacted the police station, and there was one man left who, in fact, had worked there. And he said, sure, he'd be glad to have me interview him. But every time I called him to set up a time, he'd say, well, call me next week and call me in three days. And this went on for weeks and weeks. And then he stopped taking my calls. So I don't know what happened, but it would have been wonderful to have that perspective on the club. Oh, I think that that would. I think uh, somehow that would be great to uh, to follow up on. But didn't you mention that, I don't know if he was from that particular police station, but there was a, a policeman who was a vibe player? No. And, no, I never met him. Al Young talks about him. Okay. I wasn't sure if he was in the in the club uh, or if he was from that that precinct. No, 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 no. I think he was from back east. And I don't think he ever played in that club. And I can't think of his name right now. But no, I don't believe he ever played at Keystone. But he apparently wrote um, a tune called something Get Off the Fuzz or something with police in it. But Aura Harris tells this great story about having to, she would come early um, on the Tuesday when the musicians were coming in and she would start cooking before the musicians got there. And as she put it, it was so when they came, instead of the club smelling from stale cigarettes and hot smoke and beer and liquor, it would smell of cooking, home cooking. And she said the musicians loved that because they would come in they could get something to eat while they were uh, doing sound check and set up. And then Todd was happy because then they'd all be on time because they'd stay at the club until the first set. And she says one night, she ca- and parking in North Beach was very difficult, although there was a parking garage, a public parking garage, right on the other side of the police station, um, which is often where I parked. But, of course, she didn't want to go spend money to, you know, to park in a parking lot. And also it would have been very inconvenient getting her food out of the car and down the hill and blah, blah, blah. So she said one night she got there and there was no place to park. And so she parked in the alleyway uh, between the club and the police station. And it's where the cops park their personal cars. And she jumped out of the car. She went into the police station. She said, listen, I've got all this food. I've got to unload. I'm working at the club. Da, 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 da. If you let me park here, I will bring you a carrot cake as soon as it's baked. They said, no problem. And then she had a permanent parking place. And the back door to Keystone was right there in the alleyway. So she was very tickled with that. But that's the kind of place it was. You know, it it brought out the best in people. Um, I don't remember who tells the story at the moment of Bill Cosby coming to the club one night and standing outside in line with everybody else um, buying their tickets. And the woman in front of him didn't have enough money for her ticket. And he just said, no problem, I'll buy it for her. Um the doorman at the door was a very tall, very handsome black man named Bob who looked very fierce, but, you know, was gentle and kind and 
when my daughter was with me, he would always have her sit up front with him and help take tickets. And Helen Ray, who was one of the waitresses there and, and who passed away a few years ago, says, you know, he would make sure that when she was leaving the club that somebody was going to make sure she got home all right. And there was a great sense of community in this little place. Yeah, you really, I mean, your your book, it really touches you that way. And, and even the even the dysfunctional things had a, a sense of great humor, like losing the liquor license and then running out to Coit Liquors to buy the liquor to serve to I'm the sorry, patrons. I'm sorry, I lost you. Oh, well, I was just thinking that even the uh, the dysfunctional things had a great humorous side of, of running out to Coit Liquors to buy liquor after they lost their liquor license to uh, to pour yeah. the drinks. You know, you're you're losing money, but you know it's great jazz. Yep. So you're making it work. There was you know, it that. can't last forever. There was yeah. that. Yeah, it's uh, it's really marvelous. Well, um, what about um, towards the end? Uh, you were there uh, taking pictures. When the Keystone Corner closed, what was what was that like? You know, I you don't had have this. A voice. Can you hear me now? How about there? Can you hear me, Kathy? Now I can hear you. Okay. Uh, hopefully, we can edit uh, all these uh, minor imperfections out. Um, Are you going to edit this story? Yeah, we can we can edit uh, a lot of this. So uh, I will Oops. I will rely Lost on my editor. Again. Well, yeah, to, to to make us look uh, to make us look beautiful here. Uh, the story I was thinking about is you were there at the at the end of the Keystone Corner. Um, what was that? What was that like for you? Um, did you know, you know that it was the end of an era at I, the time? By the end of Keystone, I was certainly not aware that they were in the trouble they were in. Um, I probably wasn't there quite as often as I had been before. I'd been there by that time since 1976. Keystone opened in 1972, but I didn't get there till 1976. Um, what I remember clearly is that there was an exhibit up that I had done with um, a local writer, poet, John Ross, and that was up on the walls. I I probably never took it down because Keystone closed then. And I was also um, getting ready to move to Grenada in the West Indies where I was going to do some photography for UNICEF. And I left July 3rd of 83 and Keystone closed in June, May or June. So I don't have clear memories of the very end. Um, Flicka McGurin and Helen Ray and others talk about that in the book. It's the last chapter called The End of Keystone. And there is a photograph of um, the IRS sign that was up on the door that um, somebody gave me to use in the book. And... You know, Todd says, or Todd says it was creatively cremated, is how he puts it. Um, other people say it closed 
with just a whimper. There was no hoopla. There was no closing night. It just shut down. Almost strangely poetic, you yes. know, in a way in that a, you that you had this marvelous run of eleven years or so with these the best jazz musicians of all time, and in a in a city that was known for experimentation and and freedom and uh, and community. Uh, I think you really really captured that. I think. Uh, I think if you're interested in in jazz you, and you're and you're interested in San I worked Francisco, hard at it. <laughs> well, you did, and it, it was uh, a I, long it, process and worth every minute of it. Oh well, that's that's lovely to hear. I think you've 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 left a living document of something that you can't capture again, but uh, but you can capture it again in your book. I uh, I think it really comes out and. And and it was wonderful to include the CD as well and and the discography I'd too. I'd like to um, tell your listeners that if <clears throat> they would like to see some of the photographs from the events um, that have happened around the book, read more about it, and see other jazz work, they should go to my website, which is kathysloanphotographer.com, and there's a page just on everything having to do with Keystone. And then under other bodies of work, there are photographs from taken from other jazz venues. There were a, a number of small places that existed at the same time as Keystone. And um, recently I did a lecture at the Jazz Heritage Center that looked at the places that were presenting jazz during the Keystone years, and then what came afterwards up until, you know, two weeks ago. So uh, those photographs are there uh, as well. And then under press, there are some wonderful interviews, and I hope I'll be able to figure out how to put this interview up there, as well as reviews and all of that. So it's well, kathysloanphotographer.com. All right. Well, I, I've, I've been there myself, and uh, I loved your photographs and also the, uh, the, the uh, short Hiroshima uh, film that you made uh, during the course of, of writing this book uh, was quite fascinating. So tell me, you're, uh, you are an artist, uh, and you, you seem to, to, to commingle the different media quite well you know you uh, literature the narrative uh, your your photographic narrative just like a good jazz solo it tells a story what are you doing now what are your projects now well now i'm looking at two things at the same time one of them is a book of photographs that i made in grenada in 1982 and 1983 which was during the time of the revolution there. Um, I moved there in 1983 to live there for a year, but the American invasion of Grenada interrupted that after three months. And during that invasion, all of the archives in the country were destroyed. And I've been told that I have the only photo document of what the country looked like during the revolution. Also, um, Hurricane Ivan, 19, I forget what year that was, destroyed an enormous amount 
of the country, um, the houses, the buildings. Um, and so I have a, a number of photographs of that because while I was there, I also worked for the tourism department, just photographing the landscape and boat building and all kinds of things there. So I'm revisiting that. And I'm also working on a photo autobiography um, with not a lot of text, a little bit of text, and then just photographs from all of the privileged places I've been able to be in as a freelance photographer, uh, mostly focusing on the Bay Area, on the multicultural, multi-ethnic nature of the Bay Area. Working as a freelancer gives you entree into places that you don't ordinarily go to. You know, we live our lives on fairly narrow tracks. So it's music, it's dance, it's history, it's all kinds of things. So those are the two projects I'm in the middle of, and I'm first doing a lecture at the Oakland Public Library in two weeks you, uh, about Oaxaca in Mexico, where I spent a fair amount of time, and they're doing a travel series, so they asked me to do a kind of slideshow narrative. And I haven't been in Oaxaca since 1994, so this is fun, going back to that. That's where I am today. Well, you've certainly been the author of your own experience, Kathy. It, uh, <laughs> you, you have been a, uh, you are a jazz player, uh, without a doubt, uh, in, in your work. So just to re, to mind the, remind the listeners, uh, the book is Keystone Corner, Portrait of a Jazz Club. And, uh, the author and photographer is Kathy Sloan. And, uh, it's really been a pleasure. And, uh, it really touched me having grown up in the Berkeley Hills and living in the Bay Area and, and, uh, and listening to that music again. Uh, I think, uh, you will have recaptured a lot of things for a lot of people who remember that era. And, and also, more importantly, I think, uh, people who would never have had a chance to experience it. I think you can experience that uh, unique place, uh, unique jazz club in San Francisco, the, the Keystone Corner. Uh, thanks so much for, for doing this. It was uh, just a joy talking to you. You've been listening to New Books and Jazz with Doc Stull and my interview with Kathy Sloan, freelance photographer and author of Keystone Corner, Portrait of a Jazz Club, published by Indiana University Press, 2012.